The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. You've probably heard of the term the butterfly effect. It comes from chaos theory, the idea that something as small and seemingly insignificant as a butterfly flapping its wings could influence the path of a tornado that forms weeks later. While the term originated inside the context of weather science, the butterfly effect itself has bloomed into having a broader meaning, what was a lesser-known concept noted by mathematicians and meteorologists to explain seemingly inexplicable weather trends, has developed into something that comes up in a lot of media, movies, TV shows, and video games. More or less, it's become a poetic way to describe cause and effect in general. It's something you could even trace in the world of true crime. A little girl deciding to go on a bike ride with her brother in the early 90s, only to never be seen again leads to a nationwide system that pings an alert to the smartphone in your pocket whenever a child goes missing in your area 30 years later, saving countless children from what could have been a similar fate. In today's episode, the circumstances are vastly different from that of Amber Hagerman and the Amber Alert, which we will be covering in a special project soon that provides a more in-depth telling of that case. Today, an appeal in Arkansas could have led to a retrial for a man who had been given a death sentence in Idaho a year earlier, after over 20 years of robberies, rapes, and murders. Okay, on to the show. Timothy Stewart Ring, William Elwood Ferguson, and James Harold Greenham all had previous experience in working with law enforcement. Ferguson had been a police officer, while Greenham had been a detention officer, as well as a bounty hunter tracking down bail jumpers on behalf of bond agencies. Ring had carried out a number of similar roles, a police officer and detention officer in addition to working as a bounty hunter with Greenham, and he had also worked for an armored car company, the companies tasked with transporting large amounts of money from stores or banks. That last role in particular gave Ring the exact kind of information the three men needed to know in order to rob an armored car on November 28, 1994. Little did the other two men know, if their stories are to be believed, that Ring intended to commit more than just robbery. John McGock worked as a driver for an armored car, employed by the bank Wells Fargo to safely transport deposits from clients to the bank. John was 54 years old on the day he and his partner arrived at the Arrowhead Town Center in Glendale, Arizona, pulling up in the parking lot for what should have been a job like any other. John waited inside the vehicle while his partner left the car, heading to collect a deposit. It is perhaps because of the nature of this job, just another stop at a shopping center to collect a large sum of money, one of many they likely would have made that day, that John felt comfortable to crack open the door of the armored car to smoke a cigarette. He couldn't have predicted what happened next. As the open door completely negated the intended safety afforded by the armored car, 
John became vulnerable to exactly what the bulletproofed vehicle would have protected him from, a gunshot to the head. Although John was still alive when James Greenham entered the van, he succumbed to his injuries not long after. Greenham pushed John's body out of sight and drove away from the scene, later abandoning the van and John McGock's body in a church parking lot. He had been communicating with two other men via two-way radios, William Ferguson, who had been acting as a lookout during the crime, and Timothy Ring, who had been approximately 40 yards away from the armored van when he shot John in the head using a high-powered rifle with a scope. When the three met up after the van had been discarded, it is estimated that they had stolen between $500,000 and a million dollars. John's body was discovered later that same day when churchgoers started arriving at the parking lot where he had been left inside that armored vehicle. For months following this murder and robbery, the three men flaunted their wealth and lived the high life. Women working as exotic dancers reportedly received diamond jewelry worth thousands of dollars from Ferguson, Greenham, and Ring when they frequented their performances. Neighbors of Ring and Greenham in particular noticed that they were showing off several new toys, including brand new vehicles from ATVs to motorbikes and boats, as well as pieces of technology, electronics, scuba gear, and expensive weapons. None of that was suspicious in itself, though, and it wasn't until a convicted felon came forward that police investigators managed to identify their main suspects. The felon told investigators that he had previously been involved with Greenham and Ring, and together they had tailed and surveilled armored cars to learn the habits and schedules of their drivers. This was all the police needed to hear. They set up wiretaps and monitored the three men, during which time they even discovered what they suspected to be another plot in northern Arizona, which the men referred to as the plan up north. Before long, they had collected sufficient evidence to arrest the three men, and Greenham immediately bowed under pressure and cooperated with the police. Greenham told them all about the robbery, the planning that led up to it, and the eventual murder. He insisted that Ring was the leader of the gang and the one who had pulled the trigger intentionally murdering John McGock, when it was supposed to be just a wounding shot. He also claimed that Ring had forced Greenham to be a part of the plan by threatening his family and took police to the lake where they had disposed of evidence such as John's gun. During a search of Ring's home, police found $270,000 in cash hidden away. When they contacted his former police chief, he wasn't surprised by what they had told him, stating that Ring was a conniving and frequent liar who was fired for choosing to partake in a high-speed chase over responding to a murder scene. The trial itself was relatively smooth sailing. William Ferguson was given the lightest sentence of 16 years in prison and was released back in 2013. James Greenham received 27 years in prison as his punishment. Timothy Ring, however, was sentenced to death for what the judge considered to be murder with the aggravating factors of committing the crime with the sole intent of profiting from it and doing so in an especially heinous way. The appeals process for Ring was where things started to get complicated. His lawyers claimed that having the death sentence imposed by a judge alone violated a defendant's constitutional rights, particularly the Sixth Amendment right to a trial by jury. Only a handful of states mandated that a death sentence was to be ruled by a judge alone, including Arizona, Montana, and Idaho. The jury would determine whether a defendant was guilty or innocent, 
Then they would be sent away, and the judge alone would decide whether there were sufficient aggravating factors to warrant the death penalty. And in 2002, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed with Ring's defense team. In a 7-2 ruling, the court decided that it must fall upon the jury to make decisions, not the judge. It would be put into effect immediately, overturning dozens of death sentences in the relevant states and mandating resentencing in each of these cases to see whether the juries affirmed the death penalty or commuted their punishment to life in prison. Five years later, Timothy Ring's retrial took place. Curiously, despite taking his fight to the level of the U.S. Supreme Court, he waived his right to sentencing by jury and actively chose to have a judge alone determine his fate. This time around, he was resentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Although Ring may have decided to take his chances without the jury at his retrial, this Supreme Court ruling still affected a great number of inmates spending their final days on death row. The rest of today's episode will focus on one such man, who at the time of John McGoke's murder was already on death row in Idaho for a series of rapes and at least one murder. James Godwin was born to parents Hazel Johnson and Sherman Godwin in Pensacola, Florida, on December 9, 1947. Sherman was an alcoholic who spent much of his life in prison, James later going on to say that his biological father was more or less raised in the Kansas penitentiary. James later going on to say that his biological father was more or less raised in a Kansas penitentiary. James also had one older half-brother named Ernest Arnold, though it does not seem that the two spent much time together growing up. This may be in part due to Hazel moving with James to Pocatello, Idaho, when Sherman was once again incarcerated in federal prison in 1949. Hazel married another man shortly after the move, and for a few years, nothing untoward happened to the young James. But when he was only eight years old, a fire took hold of a building across the street from his school either a potato warehouse or a potato processing plant, depending on the source. He watched as his mother, who may have worked in the building, rescued two other workers before dying in the flames. Seeking comfort, the young boy put his arms around a woman standing nearby. But instead of doing the right thing and consoling the child who had just lost his mother, she pushed him away. Later, James would understandably describe this event as destroying him, completely changing the trajectory of his young life, and he would say that the actions of the woman who pushed him away had led him to hate all women. After the loss of his mother, he was sent to live with his aunt and uncle in Idaho Falls. Mildred and Jean Wood adopted James, changing his name to James Edward Wood. However, James's childhood only got worse from that point, as he claimed to suffer constant physical and mental abuse from his adopted parents. The Woods claimed James was out of control at around 14, after he began to set fire to dumpsters for fun, as well as stealing at least one car. Because of this, they repeatedly sent him to a juvenile detention facility called the Idaho Youth Training Center, which he attempted to escape multiple times. When James was still only 14, Mildred and Jean washed their hands of their nephew and surrendered him to the care of the state. James was finally able to leave the school in 1963 at the age of 17, when his father Sherman invited his estranged son to come live with him in Shreveport, Louisiana. Sherman had moved to the area after being released from prison and sent James a bus ticket so that the pair could be reunited. 
In Shreveport, James began to work selling and installing chain fences as a part of his father's business. At this point, I'll note that James Wood was such a prolific criminal and violent sexual predator that it is often difficult to make a coherent timeline of the events in his life. Various newspaper sources and texts give different dates and ages for the same events, or reference jail stints without providing context for the particular crime, and many of them are reporting 20 or so years after the crimes. James's later confessions to police also complicate matters, as they either cannot be fully confirmed or trusted to be reliable. So, if a date or detail is a year or two off here, we apologize, and we are being as thorough as we can in getting this accurate and not missing any of his victims. The adult James, as can be seen in his police mugshot, looked just like any average person. He was white with dark hair, a rounded rectangular face, and a high hairline. His hair was slicked back and appeared greasy, curling at the ends just below his ears. He had a thin mustache and thin eyebrows, eyes that were slightly close together with dark circles under them, and a broad nose that came to a large rounded tip. Nobody who passed him on the street could ever have guessed such an inoffensive appearance hid such depths of depravity. James later told police that he committed his first rape and attempted murder in 1965 at age 18. Apparently, he had been experiencing violent sexual fantasies from a very young age, and he started to indulge them in his adulthood. He claimed that he turned himself into police and begged for psychiatric help following this assault, but authorities would never be able to confirm any of these claims, as there was no record of any of them. Other sources report that he didn't start committing these assaults until his early 20s. At this point, James had moved to Missouri to enter a flight school, and Missouri was also where he met and married his first wife, Angie Bell, in 1966. They had a child together, but this relationship would not last, as Angie filed for divorce within the year. And James's career also faltered, as he quit flying school around the same time, at which point James began a self-confessed rampage, raping women in Missouri and Illinois. Following his separation from Angie in 1967, James went to stay with his brother Ernest in Bossier City, Louisiana. But even this was short-lived. James broke into an apartment belonging to two young women and assaulted them, stabbing them both and attempting to sexually assault one of the two. He was quickly apprehended and sent to Bossier Parish Jail, awaiting trial on charges of aggravated battery. While he was there, he stole a blanket from a fellow inmate, Wally Smith, in the middle of a cold night. Smith, who was physically disabled, suffered for James's greed and instantly delivered payback. When James entered the cell the next day, Smith threw a cup of burning lighter fluid onto him, which left him with severe burns. James was eventually convicted for aggravated battery, but he spent less than four years in prison before being released for good behavior on August 18, 1971. He and Angie Bell remarried and had another child in 1974, but Angie filed for divorce again only months later. This time, it was permanent. After his release, James was employed as a truck driver, but this time on the road was used as yet another opportunity for James to prey on innocent people. From 1976 through 77, James and his brother were allegedly committing three or four armed robberies a week throughout Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas, according to Bannock County Prosecutor Mark Heidman. 
It is not clear whether they were ever arrested on these counts, or if this was another confession James made long after the fact. At the very end of 1976, James committed what is believed to be his first murder. Shirley Coleman was a 33-year-old mother of four who worked at the Western Electric Phone Assembly plant in Shreveport. Shirley was running some last-minute errands and doing Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve, 1976, when she was last seen at a shopping center located at Greenwood and Juella. James abducted Shirley from the parking lot, forcing her into her own 1971 Golden Beige Oldsmobile and driving her out to a secluded wooded spot near the General Electric plant. He raped Shirley in the backseat of her car before telling her he would let her go, and that if she came out of the woods with him, he would let her walk away down the road. Trusting his promise, she exited the vehicle and led the way into the woods. He then shot her in the back of her head and disposed of her body in the woods. It is possible that Shirley was pregnant at the time of her death, but as we could only find this information in one source, we unfortunately cannot confirm this for certain and don't want to state it as fact. Americans spend 90% of their time indoors, but indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, causing health risks. Almost half the population lives in areas with unhealthy air pollution levels. Airborne allergens like pollen, pet dander, and mold are common triggers for allergies and asthma. Introducing Air Doctor, an air purifier that has been featured by CNN, Money, ABC, and more. With its ultra-HEPA filter, Air Doctor removes 99.99% of bacteria and viruses, including particles as small as 0.003 microns. It can circulate the air in a 630-plus square foot room four times per hour and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Use promo code TCFC at airdoctorpro.com for up to 39% off or up to $300 off. I've had my Air Doctor for about a week now, and I have noticed a tremendous difference. I have three dogs, one cat, so that means lots of hair and pet dander all over the place circulating through the air, and it always triggered my allergies. Now I have the Air Doctor, which is literally right next to my bed, filtering the air in my bedroom, and it has made such a tremendous difference. So don't miss your opportunity to get the Air Doctor with the discount code TCFC. Remember, go to AIRDOCTORPRO.com for up to 39% off or up to $300 off depending on the model. Though her car was found abandoned in a parking lot of a supermarket the next day, Shirley Coleman's remains were not found until January 7, 1981. A hunter found her bones covered by a layer of leaves and dirt, her skull containing a bullet hole, and in the same area were a leather coat, a shoe, and a bra. Although there was no physical evidence tying James to the scene, his confession to the assault and murder was so detailed that the Caddo Parish Sheriff's deputies he confessed to were compelled to believe he was being truthful. When Roy Coleman, Shirley's son, read the details of James's confession in the news 17 years after his mother's disappearance, he also believed that James was the one to murder his mother. Though he considered it a relief to finally know what happened, the family would never recover what they lost. In 1977, James robbed a pizza restaurant in Baton Rouge. He was arrested for this robbery and released on bond, and went straight back to working as a truck driver for an oil company in Bossier City. 
During this time, he may have married again, this time to a woman from Shreveport. Two other missing women are considered to be potential victims of James around this time. Both women, Arilla Vall and Ladoja and Dodie Gay, were abducted from the Eastgate Shopping Center in Shreveport around 1978. Arilla, who was last seen dropping her husband off at work, has never been found, while Dodie's body was found the next year in the southeast of Mansfield, near a highway bridge. Dodie had been going to pick up her engagement ring, and her car was found still in the parking lot where she had last been seen. No concrete evidence has ever been found that would tie James Wood to these cases, and he never mentioned either woman to the police. But the circumstances of their disappearances were close enough to Shirley Coleman's that he cannot be ruled out as a perpetrator. By 1979, he was headed to prison again. A woman in Lincoln Parish was having car trouble and had called for assistance on her CB radio when James spotted her. He raped her, but this time police managed to catch him, and he was convicted. For this rape and the Baton Rouge robbery, for which he was still on bond, he received two concurrent ten-and-a-half-year terms in prison. But yet again, he was released early for good behavior on November 6th of 1986, serving less than six years of his sentence. After his release in 1986, for a short while, James remained in southern Louisiana, working as a truck driver again, as well as on a tugboat. By the next year, though, he had moved back to Shreveport, and there he met his third wife, Yvonne Wood, in 1988. The two had a son, and according to Yvonne, during their time together, her husband was a perfect gentleman who never showed any signs of violence. James got pretty fairly well-known to the locals for his paintings, which he would make on things like old handsaws and sell as art pieces, and he even taught art at a local retirement home. He also worked a number of jobs while there, including for an insulation company, a film lab, and a welding shop. Those who knew James remarked that he never kept any jobs for long because he found working to be boring and would frequently quit or be fired from any employment, which was why he preferred to rob people to make his money. James never admitted to any further criminal activity that took place between 1986 and 1992, but that doesn't mean he didn't commit any at all. Bannock County Prosecutor Mark Heidman said he can't believe he committed no crimes in that time period, but since he left no evidence and made no confessions, they would never know for sure. A 16-year-old girl filed a report to the police in September of 1992, claiming James sexually assaulted her several weeks earlier inside the photo laboratory where he worked. Her word was doubted due to lack of evidence and the reputation she had as a frequent runaway. But when investigators nonetheless attempted to get in touch with James over the next couple of months, he had left town. Sherman Goodwin, James's biological father, died in 1992, but it does not seem as though this affected him much as he didn't consider the two of them to be close. What did affect him, however, was an argument he had in October of that year with his wife Yvonne. She told the Spokesman Review newspaper that she discovered her husband had sexually assaulted a 14-year-old relative of hers. James would later confirm this, adding, and the police didn't do nothing about it. It appears that Yvonne kicked him out as a result of this discovery, as James moved to live with his cousin Dave Haggard in Chubbuck very soon after their argument. From this point, James went on an apparent spree of violent criminal activity, robbing at least three food joints between that October and the following June. A young woman was nearly his second confirmed murder, the same month he had the argument with Yvonne. 
Jamie Massingill was 18 years old when James abducted her from a St. Louis suburb, took her to a wooded area, assaulted, and shot her in the head. Miraculously, Jamie survived this horrifying ordeal and later went on to say that after she was attacked, she was driven to keep going just to see James Wood punished for what he did to her. Quote, I didn't care if I died. I just wanted him caught. His next attack followed soon after. Beth Edwards, only 15 years old, was abducted from the parking lot of a pizza hut. She was in the family car with her two-year-old baby sister in the back seat when James forced himself into the vehicle and drove them to the outskirts of town. He sexually assaulted the teenager before forcing her out into the snow, making her kneel down and putting a gun to her head. When the gun jammed and failed to fire, he would later claim that he decided to take it as an act of God and let the girl live. Pocatello Police Detective Scott Shaw believed differently, however. According to Shaw, James told him that he only let Beth live because it would take too long to find two gun shells in the snow if he manually ejected the jam shell and shot her. Beth later testified that she had feared for her life after the abduction and spoke of James's erratic behavior, saying, Half the time he acted friendly, then the rest of the time it was like he wanted to kill me. James Wood's final victim may have well been his youngest. Jara Lee Underwood was only 11 years old when she started her first job, where she delivered Idaho State Journal newspapers alongside her brother. Jara Lee's parents described her as outgoing, kind, loving, and smart. She did well in school and was a regular attendee of her family's church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jara Lee left the Underwood family home in the afternoon of June 29, 1993, going out to collect payment from the customers on her newspaper route. She was gone for some time when a neighbor who was familiar with the Underwoods through church drove over to the family home to tell Jeff and Joyce that she had seen their daughter getting into a stranger's car. The Underwoods immediately reported that their daughter had been abducted to the police, and Jeff went out to search for Jara Lee while Joyce waited at home, just in case the little girl managed to make it home on her own. Police set up traffic checkpoints and national media began reporting on Jara Lee's disappearance, hoping to bring her home safely. But she would never make it home. James Wood was eating dinner with his cousin who lived on Jara Lee's paper route when she visited the house that late afternoon. His cousin handed her a check and James waited for a few minutes before declaring he was going to buy alcohol and left the house. He immediately approached Jara Lee and told her that the check was no good, but if she gave it back to him, he would give her the amount in cash. When Jara Lee looked into her bag, James grabbed her and pushed her into his car. He drove a long, overcomplicated route that managed to avoid police checkpoints searching for the girl, eventually arriving in Idaho Falls. Jara Lee chatted to James, staying brave, asking why he had abducted her and telling him about her religion and a clogging class she was a part of. James led her out to use the restroom alongside the Snake River, but followed the girl and shot her in the head before she could make it far. He hid her body beneath the bushes by the river and drove away. The horror was not over, though, as James would return later in the week to violate her body and dismember it before pushing her remains into the river. Jeff and Joyce did not have to wait long for answers, even if they were the answers they never wanted to hear. A week after Jara Lee went missing, James Edward Wood was taken into custody and charged with her kidnapping. 
He confessed to her murder in detail, as discussed, as well as several other rapes, assaults, murders, and attempted murders, as we mentioned earlier. Geralee's parents were not allowed to see their daughter's body before she was buried, due to the condition of her remains. They attended professional counseling sessions, including one where they made a scarecrow replica of James Wood, and were encouraged to take their anger out on it. They shared that they also found peace in knowing that Geralee was safe with their Heavenly Father, as per their faith. With his open confessions, it took no time at all for James Edward Wood, now 46, to be charged with first-degree murder and sentenced to death by lethal injection. He pleaded guilty to all charges regarding the abduction and murder of Geralee Underwood, reportedly saying, The wages of sin are death. During the sentencing hearing, survivor Jamie Massingill was able to see justice for what had happened to her, sobbing for most of her 45-minute-long testimony. Presiding Judge Lynn Windmill described him as a cold-blooded, pitiless slayer as she delivered the final sentence. Though he was only ever charged for one murder and a handful of sexual assaults and armed robberies before that, it is strongly believed that James may have been responsible for significantly more crimes than he ever confessed to. Police believe that up to 85 rapes and dozens of murders can be attributed to James, though he was never definitively connected to them, in addition to around 200 robberies. Following the murder of Geralee Underwood, the community was drastically changed. In the reviews of a book co-written by Pocatello Police Detective Scott Shaw, Eye of the Beast, the true story of serial killer James Wood, there are numerous comments that attest to this. Locals who were children during this period of time reported being put on lockdown by their parents and haunted by dreams of James Wood because of what he did to Geralee. It is difficult to imagine the feelings of fear and uncertainty that must have been prevalent in the years before James was brought to justice and the communities where other young women were raped and murdered and their cases remained unsolved. At first, James asked that his appeals be dropped in order to expedite his execution. He later changed his mind, however, and burned through several appeals, all denied between 1995 and 2002. However, you'll notice it was a judge that sentenced James Wood to death, not a jury. As such, due to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in the case of Ring v. Arizona, in 2002, James Wood's death sentence was overturned, awaiting resentencing by jury. Jeff and Joyce Underwood were deeply alarmed by this news, so much so that Jeff admitted to saying a prayer to Heavenly Father, asking if he would please just take Wood's life so that it would be over and done with. James Wood was in fact still awaiting this resentencing trial when he complained of breathing difficulties on the morning of January 30, 2004. An ambulance was called to take him from the Idaho Maximum Security Institution, but was pronounced dead at the scene when it arrived at 9.32 a.m. He died of natural causes stemming from medical issues involving his heart and lungs. He was 56 years old at the time of his death, two weeks after Jeff had made his prayer. The cases we've covered today had many butterfly wings, a quick smoke break, a warehouse fire, a paper route, that led to a number of awful tornadoes, murder, robbery, abductions, and sexual assault. Whether Jeff's prayer was just the flutter the universe needed to ease the suffering of James Edward Wood's victims and their families once and for all, we will never know. 
Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me this episode as we file away another true crime case. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now at true crime underscore cases, Facebook at true crime cases W Laney, and Instagram at true crime cases with Laney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk, with content editing by me, Lainey. Audio engineering provided by the best in the business, Neeks, at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com.